0: Hello there, we're back. And so are you, so that has to be a good sign. I hope you're able to find something to celebrate today, no matter what struggles you're working through. But if nothing else, we can both at least celebrate that we're sharing another episode together. I'd like to hear from you on that note, not the general you, the audience, but you listening on your way to work or watching on your iPad over your lunch break, even you with your headphones in on the treadmill. If something catches your interest in this episode or even one of the prior episodes, drop your question or comment in an email to priceofpainpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll answer it on a future episode. And that's an episode I'm really looking forward to, so don't be shy. Drop that question in, and we'll get to it pretty soon. All right, today's guest is Dr. Steve Anton. He's a full professor and division chief of clinical research at the University of Florida Institute on Aging. He's got faculty appointments in the College of Medicine and the College of Public Health and Health Professions, and he's a licensed clinical psychologist. His research is uh, pretty much focused on lifestyle factors to promote healthy aging and also to reduce age-related metabolic disease. So we talk about intermittent fasting and other behavioral and lifestyle choices that we can make that affect our health as we age and maybe even how long we stick around. So I'm going to let him do the talking. We cover these topics uh, somewhat briefly, so... Look for another episode, we'll have him back. All right, let's get to the show.
1: Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals, as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives.
2: I started in graduate school because or even before graduate school and as an undergraduate when I was uh, taking both psychology and medicine courses and trying to decide what I wanted to do I was you know interested in both and then I was um, introduced to this course called health psychology in undergrad in my junior year of undergraduate and at that point I had this epiphany that this is what I want to do. And because this course was related to how our lifestyle affects our health and wellness or increases our risk of disease. Okay. And so when I took that course, I said, this is what I want to study and was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to study that, the field of clinical and health psychology at the University of Florida.
0: So wait, is, is that new then? Because I, I don't think I knew this. Was there a point where you were considering going to med school instead?
2: Absolutely. Okay. As an undergraduate, I, I was a pre-med uh, major for a while. Uh-huh. and then i just thought the way my brain worked didn't necessarily align with the biochemistry side of it <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> so it's
0: funny how some of those classes uh you know, the, a lot of times universities call them weed out classes, but sometimes they'll weed people out just by like, yep, nope, I'm not even going to take that. So maybe this is not what I want to do. <laughs> it,
2: it, it was uh, helpful to at least uh, take a couple chemistry courses and right. say this is probably not for me. Right. But um, but the interest in health and wellness was for me, and and the interest in medicine was for me, and so that when I ha- when I saw the course, it was really exciting because I thought, here's what I really want to focus on for, you know, my, my career. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was a big deal. Cause you know, when you're an undergrad and you're not sure what your life looks like in, in the future and, uh, it just was a great uh, moment for me. Oh, was undergrad the last point where
0: you weren't sure what your life was going to look like in the
2: future? <laughs> for, me, for me, that's a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. And your point is well taken. As I said, that we're all <laughs> we're yeah. all uh, living day
0: by day. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I, I never knew that about you. So that's that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, so t- tell me a little bit about the uh, the health psych course. You said it was health psychology, and it was a specific course obviously psychology is a a pretty broad field, um, broad discipline, but what specifically in that course caught your attention and went, oh, wait, there is, because it seems like that's the case for a lot of uh, of people in academia. There's a a light bulb moment where you go, oh, wait, I could, I could just spend a whole career dancing around this idea here.
2: Sure, sure. It really was the intersection between psychology and medicine, Mm -hmm. specifically called behavioral medicine that caught my interest, because the idea that What we do truly influences our well-being and not just um, taking medications, but literally the behaviors we engage in are like medicine for our bodies Mm -hmm. and they can make us well or they can make us sick. And, you know, now that might seem so, you know, commonly understood, but 20 plus years ago, that wasn't quite as commonly understood that math doesn't add up for me. You're, you're 20, 29 now, 28.
0: Um, all right. So, and, in, in I guess in that respect, um, if you're not comparing it to medicine, but saying it is a form of medicine in a way, um, you know, there's some, there's some medicine that's preventative and then there's some that, that is used as a treatment after, you know, to, to deal with a certain condition or uh, affliction. W- would it work the same way for?
2: Absolutely. For, for both. And, and the, you know, the prime example for that would be, you know, treatment of obesity or metabolic syndrome mm-hmm. or any um, chronic disease condition, including chronic pain, that has uh, underpinnings related to lifestyle. Or at least there's a con- there's a contributing factor in what we do in terms of how well we're sleeping, what we're doing in terms of movement, what types of diet we're taking in. All these are relatively major contributions to either increasing our risk of disease mm-hmm. or have a role in potentially treating the disease.
0: So where did you go from there? I, you know, I really don't usually do a timeline thing, but I'm kind of interested in this because these are things that I don't necessarily know about you. So so once you caught on to, um, you know, whether it's behavioral psychology or health psychology, um, what of, of those things, because obviously there's, what is it, like about five, Main categories of behavioral uh, or behaviors, I should just say, that that can contribute to longevity or health, and you know things like proper diet, enough sleep, enough exercise, low stress. Um, what out of those are originally? Because you've kind of narrowed it down to that idea. But what really caught your attention? Because you're you're primarily now it seems like um, focused on diet and
2: nutrition, right? That's a, a big part of what I study, but probably not. Um, it's a, a, a major component, let's say that. But uh, certainly, other lifestyle factors such as exercise, such as you know, reducing sedentary behavior, mm-hmm. are part of what I study. Probably the the one lifestyle factor which I think is super important, but that I don't or haven't done much research on, is sleep. I think more mm-hmm. and more research needs to be done on on sleep. And but uh, to answer your question. Um, It was really recognizing that those four, and I I would argue also at the time smoking was probably a bigger factor, Mm -hmm. just recognizing how important those lifestyle behaviors are for our well-being was what got me excited to say, this is what I want to study. And more specifically, uh, how they affect our metabolism Mm -hmm. and how our metabolism influences our health. And well-being. And, and down the road, I had the epiphany that there's a connection between our metabolism and potentially our rate of aging. Okay. So, um, but that wasn't until later.
0: Now, was um, this something that, that you said, hey, wait a minute, I should look at this? Or was it something that was kind of emerging in your field at the time? Or is this really something that, that you you kind of came to the conclusion on your own that it it, it demanded more attention?
2: Well, so... For me, what happened was, you know, I went to graduate school. I was fortunate enough to get to the University of Florida for graduate school. Where, do you, where did you go to undergrad? Well, it was a school up north uh, called Florida State University. We'll edit that uh, out. That. <laughs> great school. <laughs> both are great schools and great experiences at both. And so um, while I was in graduate school, mm-hmm. um, the epidemic of obesity wasn't quite what it was or is today, obviously but it was becoming more and more of a problem, and so I became more and more interested in what the contributing factors were Mm -hmm. from a healthy weight management standpoint or what we could do to prevent and or treat uh, the condition. And so that really was most of my focus, to be honest with you, until um, I became a postdoctoral fellow at the Pennington Biomedical Research Center. Where's that? So that's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and it was a great experience there. Uh, But as I was saying, I was really focused on lifestyle behaviors for chronic disease conditions, and it was there that I had this opportunity to be a part of um, what was called the Calorie Trial, which was um, the first randomized controlled trial to look at the effects of calorie restriction on biomarkers of aging. That's a big deal. It was cool. Yeah. It was great (laughs) to be. That's a great way to break into research, right? Yeah, it was great to be a part of it. and by virtue of being a part of it, being one of the interventionists actually in that uh, study, it opened my eyes to this potential connection between our calorie intake, our metabolic processes, and potentially our rate of aging. Mm -hmm. As I was saying before, up until that study and that experience, it was really just diet, our diet, and our exercise levels affect our body weight, but... In my mind, there was no connection with rate of aging Mm -hmm. until I got to Pennington and had this opportunity to see that there really is this connection between what we're taking in, what we're doing in terms of energy expenditure, Mm -hmm. and potentially uh, markers of aging.
0: So what kind of biomarkers did you look at?
2: So in that study, the the three biomarkers that they looked at were um, body temperature, Mm -hmm. DHEA levels, And insulin levels.
0: Let's circle back to DHEA for those that may not be aware of what (laughs) that stands for or even what it is if we don't need to. Yeah
2: sure it's a master hormone um, and it's a uh, basically it influences the production of almost all hormones within the body. Okay Um, like a gatekeeper kind of. You could say it like that. Okay and you know the acronym DHEA is what's typically used Um, And so anyway, that was the reason those markers were selected as biomarkers is because in, in previous studies with um, actually in monkeys, they followed this cohort and looked at which, which monkeys were surviving the longest and what the, what factors differentiated those who lived the longest Mm Versus those who didn't, and those were the three markers. Body
0: temperature played into that.
2: Core huh? body. How so? Core body temperature, and okay. actually having a lower core body temperature was associated with longer life. Okay, and but this is, I
0: mean, still within healthy, so not not feverish. Whatever the, I don't, I don't know what a monkey's normal <laughs> body temperature is, I, but say you know, so ninety eight point six ish for humans, right? So you're you're talking about lower even than that.
2: Well. Right, the idea that I mean, whatever their normal level whatever is, their normal yeah. is, having a little bit lower was actually uh, associated with longer lifespans.
0: That's a good sign because every time I get my temperature taken, it's always lower than ninety eight point six. All
2: right. So if you know, and there, and you know what what's fascinating is that our diet mm-hmm. and or frequency of fasting can influence our core body temperature and Fre- a-
0: frequency of fasting.
2: In what? Yes. Well, this is probably
0: going to be a whole other part of the conversation. Sure. But, sure.
2: So it's not really it's not really what you're saying. What they're eating. It's when they're eating it. It's a possible contributing factor. Okay. Both what and when. Okay. And you know, because the uh, process of eating itself, there's a, a thermic effect of food. Means every time we eat, our our core body temperature is increased mm-hmm. to convert the food into energy. Sure. And so. Um, Part of what may contribute to lower body temperature is frequency of eating, but also quantity of eating um, quantity of meals
0: at at any point, to your knowledge, I mean <laughs> we had this conversation actually over the weekend talking about uh, a book that a friend recommended that claimed to have really taken a review of all the literature in an area and then presented that, and we were both discussing on how difficult that really is, particularly for somebody outside of academia so um for those listening or watching along, you know, understand that it's not like you have the, your finger on the pulse of every single publication that's ever been released. But back to my question about what a human or a monkey eats versus when they eat it. Have there been studies that take a specific diet and say, okay, well, this is, even if it's not a healthy diet per se, but then restrict the timing of the feeding to see which is weighted more. Do You see what I'm getting at? Like, is is it more important what you eat or when you eat it? Obviously. Is, yeah, these are the. That?
2: Um, to my knowledge, nobody's looked at what versus when question for core body temperature. Okay. Um, you, Do you know, hear that? scientists
0: uh, out there pay attention. <laughs> yes, yeah,
2: that's a great question, actually, and I think that it's clear they both play a role, right. and. And then there's degrees of like, well, how long are you fasting and how much are you restricting? And so there's all these gradients that make it difficult to give a clear answer to that question.
0: Yeah, I was, I was uh, again, back in that same conversation. And I'm sorry for those that are following along now to reference something that you're not privy to. But but as Dr. Anton and I were, were talking about this, we brought up uh, another scholar who really pointed out, um, and David Sinclair, I, I see no reason not to bring this up, but David Sinclair um is, is a big proponent of the fact that the right amount of stress to, uh, at least when it comes to diet to the body seems kind of important. And, and maybe in, in, I'd like your thoughts on this, but maybe one of the reasons that we are where we are is not necessarily what we eat, but the fact that we can eat whenever we want. We don't have to go through periods where our body says, okay, I've got to be efficient and figure out how to use the resources that I have because I won't be having new resources coming in anytime soon. Would you agree with that? Do you think there's something to it?
2: Absolutely. And I think uh, the biological process you're referring to is called uh, hormesis. And and I fully agree that mild stress can make our cells become more resilient. Mm -hmm. And so that stress could be dietary, meaning the time in which we do not eat places a mild stress on the body mm-hmm. to adapt and find a way to produce energy without having energy from an external source. And so that's a mild stress. But the the mild stress that leads to beneficial cellular changes or adaptations doesn't need to be just dietary. It's certainly the way that exercise can work to create more resilient mm-hmm. cells, or heat stress, mm-hmm. or cold stress, or, or many other types of mild stress. The key, I think, is that it's Temporary, and that it doesn't overwhelm the s- the system. Mm-hmm. But um, so there's an optimal level of stress. It's got
0: to be outside. Speaking in layman's terms, it's got to be outside the norm, but not so far outside the norm that it breaks something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. So because I I I think most people listening or, or watching along would agree if you think about it, the human body. I, this is my favorite feature, I guess, of, of the human organism is the fact that we are so adaptable. Um, you brought up exercise and that's the, the easiest, I think, example to make. And I talk about this in, in some of the courses that I've taught is that, you know, we think of, of atrophy, for example, as a bad thing, right? When, when, when our muscles shrink from disuse, uh, or a a use at a level that's, that's different from, you know, before. So if you're you're exercising a level, let's say you go and you work out and, and you do a bench press three times a week and then you stop doing that, well, the muscles that are involved in that bench press will get smaller. They atrophy. And we usually think of that as a bad word, but it's a phenomenally clear example of how the body adapts to the demands placed on it. If there's less of a demand, well, that muscle is metabolically active and it's taking up energy for no good reason. Right if you don't if if you if you don't need to have that muscle there then why waste energy in maintaining that muscle so your body tones it down. I think that's really f- pretty phenomenal when you think
2: about it. Uh, 100% agree and it's you know we are adaptive creatures and, and that's the body's way of enhancing the likelihood of survival. Mm-hmm. If as you've mentioned there's a metabolic cost to maintaining that muscle at a larger um, more metabolically demanding level why why should the body do it unless it needs to be prepared for that same load at some point in the near future. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it adapts short term for that possibility. But in the long term, there's no value to maintaining that adaptation right. unless it needs to be ready for it.
0: If we could spend a moment and talk uh, about Pennington and how that translated into where you are now. Sure. Um,
2: so you got on that line, mm-hmm. but you also spent time at MUSC, correct? Well, yeah, MUSC in Charleston, South Carolina, beautiful city, great experience. Agreed. That was where I completed uh, my internship. Okay. And in order to receive a PhD in clinical and health psychology, you're required to complete a one-year internship. And, mm-hmm. and so there I had great clinical experiences treating obesity, working in a Preventive health institute on the beach, Oh, and, wow. and it was you. really a great great opportunity to learn more about both um but it was during that time that i had the uh, realization that in order to um pursue what i wanted to i really needed to to find a great location for a postdoctoral um fellowship and that's when i made the choice and had the great luck to be accepted to do a postdoctoral fellowship at the Pennington. In Baton Rouge. Yeah. how about that? All we right. Yeah, you've
0: you've had some some really cool spots where you've studied. Yes. And, um. So moving on, do you, do you do
2: anything clinically now? Not at the moment. Um. Very minimal. Let's say that I see maybe one patient every couple months, mm-hmm. but very very little.
0: What do those uh, What do those types of interventions look like as a, as a clinical psychologist? If somebody comes to you and has has issues with obesity that they want to address do they come to you being referred by another physician do they come on their own accord how does how does that happen because that's that's something I, I at least I am not as familiar with uh, is is happening so tell us what that looks like
2: so to answer your question about what role psychologists might have you know in both in terms of the treatment and developing a behavioral plan and working with um, patients with obesity can be complex because there's many contributing factors, and some of which are psychosocial, some of which are environmental, some of which are uh, biological. Um, but they also can play a role in um, assessing patient's suitability for receiving bariatric surgery, and that's a big role that psychologists may have in terms of uh, working with surgeons here. Um, my, personally, uh, my clinical experience would not be really as much focused on that anymore as, more, as much as just a general um, mental health uh, mm-hmm. counselor, but I, as I was saying, that's a rare um, thing for me to do these days. Yeah, um, focus more on on research. You got it. Okay. Teaching and research and administration.
0: What's one of What's one of oh, Wow. Oh, just just that. Huh? Just that. Is, <laughs> that. That's
2: it. <laughs> it's an, enough to keep me busy. What's
0: the What's the main focus lately? Because I'm I'm aware of some of the larger studies that that, that you've conducted or been a part of. Um, but lately, what uh, what's really caught your interest?
2: Well. We have plans, as I mentioned probably a little bit, uh, to pursue the role of intermittent fasting uh, interventions for older adults, Mm -hmm. uh, because I think there's a lot of reasons why um, they could be really beneficial um, in terms of targeting many of the underlying biological mechanisms of aging, Mm -hmm. including activating autophagy, including reducing inflammation, reducing levels of oxidative stress. Um, and potentially preserving um, lean muscle mass okay. in a way that uh, is hard to do with typical calorie restriction approaches. Having said that, uh, we, we don't know if it will work. And so one of the, the studies I'm most excited about is um, an upcoming uh, study where we're going to look at uh, time-restricted feeding approaches, which is a form of intermittent fasting. It's actually what most people probably think of when you hear the word intermittent fasting um it's an approach where there's a clearly defined fasting period and a clearly defined eating period we Almost all of us actually have this, but what what I I, I
0: try, I try my best to not eat in my sleep. I'm not always successful.
2: (laughs) And, and, and so I also chuckle when, when, when I say the word intermittent fasting, because I think we all intermittently fast, unless Mm -hmm. you get up and eat during your sleep, like you said, but the reality is most people, the vast majority of us don't do that. And so we all practice a fasting time period, but I think what's unique about the time restricted feeding approach is it, doubles the amount of time in which most people fast and halves the time in which most people eat. So instead of eating for, you know, 14 to 16 hours a day and fasting for 8 to 10 hours, it's the opposite where you fast for 14 to 16 hours and you eat for 6 to 8 hours or 8 to 10 hours, what have you.
0: So, so is the greater benefit in that the fact that people just don't have as much time to eat quantity-wise, what they
2: would have before? Or is there something else going on? I think it's both, honestly. I think the fasting period itself produces a number of beneficial changes at a biological level, part of which are related to the concept of hormesis that we talked about earlier. The mild stress placed on the body leads to fundamental changes in biology that can uh, induce the body to uh, what it, what we've talked about in the past, flip its metabolic switch mm-hmm. and start utilizing um, ketones as a source of energy, which leads... As opposed to glucose. To, as opposed to glucose, exactly, which leads to um, a cleaner energy source, meaning that there's less free radicals being produced within the bloodstream, lower levels of inflammation, insulin levels are remaining low, and um, the mitochondria within the cells are functioning more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And so all these are really great changes from a standpoint of a healthy metabolic state and so by extending that fasting period you extend the time that your body is in this healthiest state of course we need food and we need to um, balance the two Mm -hmm. and so i think trying to find the right balance is really where a lot of research is going to be going in the future
0: let's circle back to some of that because you know i I have to act as uh, a proxy. For some of our audience, I know there'll be some people that that haven't listened to a single episode of ours so far, but that'll be very interested in hearing about intermittent fasting. On the other hand, there are some people that uh, you know listen to us because uh, of a of a prior guest that we've had on or a topic that we've discussed. So I want to make sure that everybody stays up to speed on on this subject matter. So things like, let's, let's just go back to a couple terms that you've used uh, that we might be able to, to help people understand a little bit more and start with autophagy.
2: Sure, sure. So autophagy is the process through which our cells, if you want to think about it, clean themselves out or remove um, unhealthy particles. Okay. And so at a biological level, it's super important because when the cells are able to remove any toxic waste products they function more efficiently, and they can produce energy more efficiently. And so the, the demand or the, the challenge on the body at a systemic level is lower. Mm-hmm. So um, you can think about it as um, if you were cooking dinner. I like where this is going already. <laughs> <laughs> after you cook dinner, you typically clean the stove off before maybe you were going to have, have it utilized again the next day, mm-hmm. Right. Well, if you didn't clean the stove off and just kept cooking, that would mean that there's no, quote, autophagy or cleaning going on. And that process is vital to being able to um, keep ourselves as healthy as possible. And, and that process occurs predominantly while we're fasting and while we're sleeping.
0: Okay. So, so if you don't do these things and your cells don't do these things, while they're you know working, they're also, you know, Burning whatever you spilled the last time you cooked, and, exactly. and all of these things, and <laughs> maybe lighting grease fires and and detracting from their purpose.
2: Exactly. Okay. All right. I and, like that.
0: That's, I haven't and, heard that example before. That's just an to
2: kind of take it one step further, if we're you know eating very frequently, mm-hmm. it's similar in the in, as an analogy as cooking on a stove that hasn't been fully cleaned, because you haven't given your cells time to clear out and and convert the previous meal into energy. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're still working on cleaning when more food is coming in.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And you had mentioned uh, just a couple other terms, oxidative stress okay. and, uh, and we'll maybe pair these together. Sure. But oxidative stress and free radicals. Now these are things that at least pe- some people will be familiar with because we've heard of antioxidants, right? mm-hmm. Oh, eat your blueberries and blah, blah, blah. Um, and free radicals are, are probably, you know, even if it's a, a an excuse to, you know, to have that glass of wine after work or whatnot. Um, People are familiar somewhat with these terms, but can you maybe flush them out just a little bit more so everybody's on the same page and talking about some of the benefits of diet?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this term oxidative stress um, has to do with the balance between antioxidants, as you mentioned, and oxidative um, particles, if you will, which are most commonly referred to as free radicals or reactive oxygen species. Mm -hmm. Now, these reactive oxygen species can come from multiple sources, from the environment, from the, you know, we breathe. If you live in a smoky environment or or areas of high pollution, that would be one source. But also, and more commonly, from our metabolic processes. The process of converting food into energy actually does, unfortunately, produce reactive oxygen species. And, And the types of foods we choose to eat and the quantity in which we eat those foods can influence how many reactive oxygen species or free radicals are produced. And so then you have this balance between um, oxidants and antioxidants. We also are amazing creatures that have endogenous antioxidants within our body to combat these um, oxidative stress markers or or these oxidative production species, if you will.
0: Okay. And endogenous in the respect that the body makes them without having to take them in from the source? Exactly. Okay.
2: Exactly. But in addition to the endogenous, we have external sources of antioxidants such as blueberries or other...
0: Good. So I wasn't wrong there. Okay. You're absolutely All right.
2: Right. All right. Or other sources um, that we can take in. And so this is where the diet starts to really play a role because if you are consuming a diet that has high antioxidant levels and low amounts of uh, foods that could contribute to increases in oxidative stress, such as processed foods or trans fats or other foods that have many preservatives that would lead the body to have to deal with this kind of um, unnatural assault on on the cells. When you do that, the levels of oxidative stress could be increased. So it's a complex... Uh, interaction, let's say so
0: uh, when you say that there are types of foods, let's just say, for example that that you eat foods that um, clean eating, for example so 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 more natural foods uh, fruits, vegetables, um, you know meat products that that don't have anything added to them, um, preservatives or or whatever um, when you say that there are some foods that place more oxidative stress on the body. Is it really looking amongst those groups or is there a big difference just between that, say, and, and processed food? I mean, are there healthy foods that, that we know that, that really place a lot of oxidative stress also and create these free radicals?
2: Or I think that's a great question. Um, probably the bigger distinction would be what you just said, the processed versus unprocessed foods. And, and foods that are in their natural state are less likely to lead to higher levels of reactive oxygen species being produced, but there is the potential that the quantity of food eaten can play a role too. And so that's why I think it's not just the types of foods, but also the amount of food that's consumed that can contribute to um, our metabolic state after a meal.
0: So that circles back even then to to talking about restricting the, the feeding and the time that you eat. I mean, clearly I, it's probably possible if if you're only eating, what would be normal? Say like an eight-hour window of the day? or
2: Well, that would be a common type of um, time-restricted eating. Mm-hmm. What's normal, though, is that most people eat for more than 12 hours a, of the day. Mm-hmm. And so um, to shift that from, let's say, a typical person would eat for maybe 12 to 14 hours a day. Mm-hmm. To shift that to eight hours would mean that they're now restricting the amount of um time in which they eat by at least four hours Mm -hmm. so
0: so just I guess what I was getting at is by design you could reduce some of that stress just because in in most cases if you have less time to eat
2: then you're probably not going to eat as much exactly exactly and so that's that is likely a reason that time-restricted eating approaches have been shown to have a number of metabolic benefits Mm -hmm. as well as but not the only one Yeah, I think so. I think the fasting period itself has benefits, but I also think it may um, lead to just fewer calories being consumed Mm -hmm. by virtue of the shorter time window. Yeah.
0: All right. Now, is there uh, in the research is there an ideal window? And and let me also ask this. Let's say you you cut the time that you eat down to eight hours or even six hours, Mm -hmm. because there are a number of ways to do this, right? Exactly. Does it matter when those six hours occur? So let's say this, because I, I think one thing that f- people are familiar with in intermittent fasting, and I've done this before, um, is you don't eat until a certain time. You wake up and you, you go throughout most of, well, not most of your day, but a portion of your day. Um, you don't eat. You maybe have coffee or something for breakfast, but as far as food, food, you might not eat until lunch or after. Is there a benefit, or, or has anybody studied this, a benefit to doing it that way, as opposed to, well, you wake up and you have a big breakfast, And then maybe you don't eat again until dinner or you wake up and have a big breakfast and a so-so lunch and then you don't eat again before bed. Is there is there a way that that seems to be better than the others?
2: Well, let's say you're you're hitting a a very hot topic and and a topic. Let me write this down. (laughs) Early time restricted eating versus late time restricted eating. And so I think that first and foremost, the best plan is the one that's going to work for someone. Mm But then the second question is, well, if you could choose, what what would be best? And I think that the research is clearly not there yet. There's um there's the argument that if you could have the early time-restricted eating window, there would be a number of hours before sleep occurs. And during sleep, as I mentioned before, that you know, this is when autophagy is enhanced. And so theoretically that could lead to additional benefits if versus, you know, eating late and then having to go to sleep shortly after. Mm -hmm. So I think um, my bias is if you can find an eating window in which you can stop eating three hours before you go to sleep, that will likely give uh, you a number of benefits. Okay.
0: Well, and, you know, the reason why I bring this up is because with me, we've had this discussion before, and it's hard to to miss intermittent fasting. People that are hearing this topic for the first time – are probably in the minority at this point, intermittent fasting is is at least getting out there as as a possibility for an alternate way to to eat absolutely so when I tried this initially, it was the the first example that I gave. I cut out breakfast, I wake up, you know, went until twelve o'clock one o'clock before I had my first meal of the day. I didn't notice a big change well. Then I started thinking about it, and, and I thought, well, you know what? I, I don't normally eat breakfast anyway. <laughs> so, so not only was that easy for me to, to adjust to and adapt to as far as the schedule, I, I, I could keep that up. Um, it also, since it was something I was already doing, it, it, it just kind of fit and wasn't a huge change from normal. But I wanted to, to bring that up as an example and, and highlight what you said that we kind of passed right over, but it is a really huge point, I think anyway that what works best, what you can stick to, what you can adhere to, and it seems regardless of whether we're talking about exercise or, or preventative measures in, in my field more and we're talking about exercise and pain, um, whatever you're most likely to stick with seems to be the right way to go. So if you're a person that, man, you, you, you have to have bacon and eggs and toast with your coffee when you wake up, well, then maybe try stop eating earlier before you go to bed to expand that that. Fasting time,
2: one hundred percent. Okay, and you know, I make a joke that whenever people ask me what the best diet is or what the best exercise program is, I say that's an easy answer. It's the one that you'll do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because and and but more seriously, um, we know that adherence and consistency is really what makes the difference. And so, if even if we know that one program is better than another physiologically if somebody's not going to continue to stick with that program, it's not the better program. Right. It's right. just not. Yeah.
0: Okay. So now let's shift a little bit to some things that, that people eat or don't eat that they should or shouldn't. So sure. you've talked about timing and, and of course, there that could fill an entire episode. We could, yeah. we could speak more and maybe we will come back to that. But I'm also curious because we talked about, well, the, the balance of what you eat versus when you eat it. Well, let's, Talk about the other side then. So the what you eat part are are there things that that we do that are are really counterproductive when it comes to not just health, but from an aging perspective. Since since that is your research um, in in healthy aging, and and are you also interested in longevity or really just more healthy aging? Because those two things are are distinctly different.
2: And I'm glad you made that point. There's the healthy aging or the health span aspect, which is the you know the time period that you live disease free to, to a large extent and, and fully functional mm-hmm. and you know a large a large focus of what we do within the Institute on Aging here at UF is focusing on how well how do you extend the healthy lifespan part of it mm-hmm. now by virtue of that it'd be great if we also extended longevity, but the goal isn't necessarily to extend longevity and have an unhealthy Life for twenty years. Mm-hmm. That seems miserable. It does. Yeah. It does to me too. So the focus is really on how do you extend healthy lifespan. Yes. And if
0: and if you happen to live longer as a byproduct, well, that would be great. Okay.
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, because another point, you know, whenever people say, "Oh, I, I wouldn't want to live that long," because I think in their mind the images of a decrepit individual and mm-hmm. you know who's not fully engaged and. And happy for, for, you know.
0: You can only watch Family Feud so many times exactly. before it starts getting old from your recliner, right?
2: But I don't think uh, aging has to be that way. Right. I think it can be a lot different and a lot better. But I think that's a, that's a really good point. You know, when we think
0: about, there's there's a lot of stigma with aging. Yep. And and that might be, like you just said, because we look at it through the lens of how it is now or or maybe even more specific to that, our personal experience with aging. You know, what, what were my grandparents like when I was 10 or 30 or whatever the case may be? Well, I'll let you know when I turn 30, but um, that's not true. Uh, But yeah, so, so our personal experiences with that often kind of create a bias for what we, what we associate with aging. And that may be entirely inaccurate. in, in, in my past and in, you know, prior to uh, my PhD, at least in my early graduate training, I got the opportunity to work with some older folks that, um, that were anywhere from 65 mm-hmm. all the way to 101 in an exercise setting. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at that group as an example, that would totally redefine what aging is all about. You know, we have these people that are coming in and, in and, and doing free weight exercises and and balance exercises and they've been retired for thirty years. Wow. And so yeah, it's uh it's uh and, and granted there's an entire spectrum. But then again, you know, I I, I know just as many people that uh, that maybe haven't been active and that their goal is to retire so they can finally sit down and relax and sleep in when they want to and eat what they want to and and all of that. So, so really, I, I feel like that that personal lens creates a bias for aging that, that may not be accurate. You don't have to accept those things.
2: I think so too. And I think we have a lot more influence over how we age than maybe we thought 20 years ago. And And that's what excites me. And not just age, but if you want to relate it to chronic disease or chronic pain, that there's a future where with the right combination of lifestyle factors plus additional treatments where people could live a very fully functional, low you know, low pain levels Mm -hmm. and fully engaged life.
0: I I do want to get to that and talk a little bit about how these uh, these behaviors affect pain and chronic pain conditions or or maybe even the experience of acute pain. Uh, Sure. Before we do, I do have a question though that that piggybacks that is is there a combination? of, of, you know, we've talked primarily about diet so much sure, for, sure. You know, just in, recently in the conversation, but is there a combination that you've found that seems either particularly effective or particularly interesting to look at, to see if there's uh, an effect between whether it be diet and exercise or diet, um, and you know, sauna is big. You, you mentioned heat and cold protein, uh, or shock proteins. Um, what, what environmental stresses and dietary stresses seem to go better or, or at least are interesting to you?
2: Well, I think that's a fabulous question and and Write there's that so one down too. I'm on that, a roll. The um the magical combination is what we all want to know I think and and I think to get to your question though a little bit you know when we think about what can amplify the beneficial effects of the fasting time period mm-hmm. one of the the factors that I think can really make a difference is is simply moving while fasting and, and or maybe combining that with something like environmental stress like the sauna mm-hmm. to amplify many of the beneficial biological changes that take place while fasting, such as increased um, mitochondrial, mitochondrial biogenesis, which is growth of new mitochondria within the mm-hmm. cells, such as enhanced autophagy, mm-hmm. such as increased heat shock proteins so that muscles recover more quickly. These are um, a great combination. And now, now I'm just talking about the fasting time period. Mm-hmm. But then... Well, is that, yeah. is that
0: because you're asking your body to do more with less? Or why, why do you suppose that connection exists of exercising specifically during the fasting?
2: I think that we all have um, this amazing ability to switch the source of energy mm-hmm. um, if we're what's called metabolically flexible. To become metabolically flexible and utilize either glucose or ketones as a source of energy. But in order to uh, shift our energy source from glucose, which is what we most all use when we're eating multiple times a day, we have to get to the point where we've depleted our glucose supply so that it tells our body we need a second source of energy to keep going. And at that point, we can switch to using ketones, which are actually made through our mobilizing our own body fat stores. Okay. And when we're fasting, if we fast for a long enough period of time, that can take place. But it takes place when we also are um, providing additional demands on the body while fasting, like you were saying. And there's additional demands that burn energy, such as the sauna or, or walking. Oh it's something even yoga. that simple
0: just just the stress of a of a increased temperature or something like that that
2: would... that can enhance energy expenditure mm-hmm. which means that the body's more likely to mobilize body fat storage and shift to using ketones as a source of energy.
0: So with the sauna is it uh, is it more a, a fact because uh, I think this is kind of interesting that that you can Sit in a you know w- what's a sauna normally temperature wise hundred degrees or something. They can
2: range actually from one hundred and thirty to one hundred and seventy okay, degrees. Okay,
0: so all right, so, so very they're not, hot environment. They,
2: it sounds very hot, uh, and it is for a short period of time. Again, does, for a short period of time is the key. Yeah. Does the
0: energy expenditure come from your body's trying to remain cool, or at a at a functioning you know like whether it's by changing circulation or what? Where does where does the energy expenditure in that come from?
2: I think you're you hit it on the head that the fact that when you're in a Hot environment, the body has to expend extra energy to try to get back to homeostasis mm-hmm. because it's such a different energy in the environment than what our body wants to function at. That's a stressful experience. Similarly, if we go into a, a very cold pool, let's say a, a pool that's 55 degrees. Well, that's Pass. very cold. And most people don't enjoy that experience. <laughs> but physiologically, the body has to work a lot harder to maintain or to maintain the homeostasis because we don't want to be too far outside of that 98.6 degree range, sure. you know. And so I think that's one of the reasons. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, you you brought up pain and, and, and chronic pain in this. And so I think that because this is the price of pain podcast that yes. it's only appropriate to, to see where these things intersect. Um, how, how can, how can dietary and, and lifestyle behaviors that that are under our control? How can we manipulate that to, to either combat chronic pain or, or prevent chronic pain states?
2: You got it. Um, I think this is where a lot of what we talked about earlier starts to make more sense when we link, you know, oxidative stress, Inflammation and pain levels, because there is a connection we know between chronic inflammation and pain, and so lifestyle factors that can reduce inflammation are likely to influence chronic pain levels. Now, it's not the only factor in in chronic pain, but um, it's one of the factors. And so, when we think about that, we want to think about dietary factors that would reduce levels of inflammation in the body, and. When I think about diet, I think about not just what you eat, which we will talk about, but when you eat and how much you're eating. All three of those, I think, uh, are major factors that contribute to the experience of chronic pain. And so, But what most people think about, I believe, when, I th- when you say the word diet is just what you're eating. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is how much you eat influences uh, chronic pain as much as what you eat probably and when you eat. And so to get a little more specific, whenever we eat, our body, um, levels of glucose within our bloodstream rise, and our body needs to combat that to get back to a homeostasis state. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is these uh, rises in glucose, those postprandial, post-meal rise in glucose has been shown to be related to levels of inflammatory markers in the blood. Which means that whenever we eat, we also experience, we may experience a rise in inflammation Mm -hmm. in the body. When you say
0: inflammatory, I apologize for interrupting. When you say inflammatory markers, you mean the same things that you would find in, in an acute state? You, um let's say you you bruise your arm or you uh, twist your ankle or something like that, your body has a response, obviously, to deal with that injury. And that's by sending these th- this chemical cascade, if you will, to, to do a number of things to help the body heal. And that goes through the bloodstream primarily. Um, are you saying that the same compounds that move through the blood as a response to that injury actually also happen when we eat
2: They food? They can. They can. Now, it depends on what you eat. and And I probably should have clarified that. If you eat... Um, pro-inflammatory foods, such as uh, unhealthy fats or high levels of sugar, processed food combination. Oh, so just basically everything that people eat What what tastes really good. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That, unfortunately, has been shown in some studies to lead to elevated uh, levels of inflammatory cytokines or markers, which are the same cytokines that our body uses to repair itself. And I always like to distinguish between acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. Certainly, we... This would be a good time to do that. All right. Certainly, we want our body to repair itself when it gets injured. And it, acute inflammation is the mechanism through which it primarily does that. Mm-hmm. And so, it's, it's great. But if, if we're unable to repair the damage, it's as though the damage is happening over and over again when we eat a uh, pro-inflammatory diet.
0: So, we actually... Okay, Earlier on in the podcast, not this episode, but mm-hmm. our very first episode with Dr. Roger Philingham, he differentiated between acute pain and chronic pain, Okay, and it really stuck with me, and this is even as a pain researcher, because it was just nice and clear and, and elegant, that he defined chronic pain, and I think he was probably repeating this, but as pain that's outlived its usefulness. All because right. pain, for example, if I stub my toe... Well, pain might tell me whether it's broken or if I just dinged it up a little bit. Of course it starts that repair process, but but if I didn't stub my toe, then there's no reason for my my toe to hurt. And once my toe's healed, it shouldn't continue to hurt because it doesn't need to my body doesn't need to tell me that there's something wrong, because there's nothing wrong anymore. Sounds like you're saying with the the differentiation between acute inflammation and chronic inflammation is kind of the same thing it's inflammation that's outlived its purpose outlived its use
2: i would say very much so okay. that you know when well there's a reason it's occurring and unlike acute inflammation which repairs uh whatever damage was created and then has served its function the chronic inflammation isn't repairing damage it's it's there in part because it's our, our body is saying we're in an unhealthy metabolic state. That's what I was going to ask.
0: What what is it uh, if if it's a natural process in response to these foods? And are are there are there again coming back to like clean or unprocessed or or, or natural foods that are pro-inflammatory that even if you're not eating well, I have to I have to be cautious. Processed meats with sure. some processed cheese on the side, and topping it off with some you know processed sugar, and, and mm-hmm. washing it down with a processed you know fountain drink. If you're not doing all of that, but eating, are, are there still pro-inflammatory foods that you're aware of that that are a problem, or is it really just poor dietary choices that that end up resulting this way?
2: So, if I understand your your question. Um, I think you're asking, are there natural foods that yeah, also yeah. would lead to a pro-inflammatory state? And and I think the answer to that is it's less likely, but it just like everything, there is a balance. And, and so you could probably eat so many, um, there's only so much fruit you could eat before right, it starts to right. turn into an unhealthy um, situation for the body. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's a healthy thing to eat at a moderate level. Yeah. As a, yeah.
0: I guess that's what I was getting at is, you know, there's, you say, well, it, it serves a purpose, um, it being that inflammatory state, you know, with these cytokines circling your blood after you eat certain things. But I guess what I was getting at is, is it really a natural response or is it a, a natural response to an unnatural Behavior that we've adopted over time because of technology or or whatever. That's what I...
2: I, The second interpretation is what I would say, is that it's uh, putting ourselves in an unhealthy state over and over again, which we may consciously or unconsciously do. And that biological response is a natural biological response to try to overcome whatever... um, challenge has been presented with, to the body. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that I would say the biological response is natural, the input may not be natural right, if right. that makes sense. Yeah,
0: no, it makes perfect sense. And that's kind of what I was what I was wondering. Mm-hmm. Because in a way it sounds like with regard to inflammation at least, which chronic inflammation, systemic inflammation, something that's not specific to, you know, for example, if if I uh, we'll go back to the the twisted ankle thing. When you twist an ankle, you know, say I twist my right ankle, my left hand doesn't become inflamed, Good point. right? There's a, a specific location, there's a specific response, there's a time period. But with the feeding, if this is, if, if we can adjust or, or minimize this response based on what we eat, not just whether we eat or not, mm-hmm. then it's entirely under our control. And if we don't, it almost seems as if we are repeatedly on a relatively daily and regular basis
2: Poisoning ourselves I agree hundred percent um, and the effects of a post the postprandial state, which again is after eating, we are in this what's called postprandial or postmeal state, the metabolic effects can last six or more hours depending on the meal size. And what was in, you know, contained in that meal mm-hmm. before we can reach, you know, more of a healthy homeostasis get back point. In, yeah. yeah. And our body's, again, always trying to get back to homeostasis.
0: Undoubtedly, there's somebody listening or watching that then wants to know, OK, well, if it's a combination of all these things and I don't want to change what I eat. Then what can I do to <laughs> during that six hour time <laughs> to shorten it? Is there something else I can do Absolutely. in combination? Yes. Yeah. Everybody's looking for these lines. And it's hacks.
2: always, uh, yeah, I totally understand. And I think... One of the simplest, quote, life hacks, if you will, that you can do to help yourself get back into homeostasis is literally take a walk after eating, uh, and it doesn't have to be a power walk. It can just be moving at a relatively slow pace, but if you are able to take a 10 to 15-minute walk after eating, that can really help uh, get the you know the body restored its uh, metabolic state and, and process the food that was consumed.
0: There are gonna be plenty of people that don't wanna hear that answer because oh. that means then you have to get off the couch or, or the, the excuse of, oh, I don't have time to go to the gym. I don't I don't have time to I don't know how to work out all these things really. Sure. You, you just you just have to get up and walk and that would there's be at least some benefit to
2: if that. you're asking, you know, what do you do after you're we all have done this and we'll continue to do it, consume foods that are probably not ideal for us but taste good. Mm-hmm. And I do it many times. <laughs> and at that point, you know, you have a choice. You could Choose not to walk or or move, or you could choose to. It's and and really everything's a choice here. But the benefits of the walking is um, it can help offset some of the damage that's a- occurred from.
0: Well, I think that lays a really good foundation. But very clearly, this is this is um, you know intermittent fasting slash behavioral psychology slash interventions for your lifestyle that promote healthy aging, one oh one. Exactly. There's a, we covered, we covered a, a wide swath here uh, with a fair amount of depth. But I'm pretty sure that you're going to have to come back and, and dig into some of these things a little bit deeper if if, if I can talk you into doing I'd so. I'd be
2: happy to. Right. I'd be happy to.
0: Well, thank you for, for sitting down in this time. I want to remind everybody that invariably there are questions. I'd like to field those questions. Uh, if you would, as I said in the intro, simply give us an email and if you missed it, rewind all the way to the beginning of this, uh, whether it's by audio or video, and I'll you know, give you the email address there. But I'd like to answer those on the podcast. And that also gives me an opportunity for when Dr. Anton comes back on as a guest, we may be able to have him field some of those questions directly. So until then, thanks for sitting down with
2: me. I really appreciate it. It was a good talk. It was my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. Of course.
1: Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests, and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price by following at uf underscore pain on twitter and price of pain podcast all one word on instagram